lost his voice this week, so we're releasing a formerly paywalled interview with Professor Adolf Reed. And become a Substack subscriber for an exclusive look at Katie using the brand new Taibi dating app. And now, here's Adolf Reed. Yeah, I don't know if this is partly a generational difference or what, but some of my friends and I talk about this. That it, so, all right, so off at one extreme, right? I sometimes uh, recall Ernest Everett Just, the black biologist, I think I got his first two names right, um, who was um, a pioneer cell biologist in like um, the years between World, World War I and World War II, started Harvard, started Howard rather. He was a graduate student at the University of Chicago around World War I in biology and chemistry. And I sometimes think, think about this when I hear the sort of complaints about how painful and hurtful it is to be like the, the only tenured black full professor at Columbia, whatever. That, can you imagine what it must have been like for this guy? Like uh, every day, and that's not saying that that should be you know the standard. Sure. But but even fast forwarding through my parents' generation and mine, frankly, there's just shit you put up with, right? There's shit you understand is part of the cost cost of life. And if you want to think about what you know, racism or racial insensitivity are, at, that's at the quotidian level. That's what that kind of stuff is. And if you spend all day as on a front seeking missile, then you'll drive yourself crazy. You'll drive everybody else around you crazy. And it's like, I used to think it was a kind of, so like in the eighties, when I was teaching at Yale and there were, you know, POC kids who would, uh, 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 who were undergraduates who would get all kind of worked up about, you know, somebody passing them and not speaking to them on the side, sidewalk or whatever. And wondering whether the professor didn't call on them because of their race, whatever. I sometimes just felt like, you know, putting my arm around them and saying, well, you know, like when my son actually got swooped up by a, um, a cop, uh, he and his friend on the way home uh, from school, walking past the Peabody uh, Museum of Natural History. The cop, by the way, for what it's worth, was a black cop with a jerry curl. Uh, and the police major whom they sent out, you know, to do the cool out the community thing was also a black dude, a black dude named Major Blackman. You couldn't get any better than that. <laughs> but when, but when he got home and I found out what had happened, because uh, he and his friend had been swept up as supposed suspects who had tried to rob uh, the food shop right next to the apartment that we lived in. And the proprietors saw the kids and, and, uh, and they berated the cops. The first thing I said to him after blowing up for about a minute was, well, okay, so you've had your black bar mitzvah, right? Because you <laughs> just got tough. swept up by the cops, right? So this was going to happen at some point. It happened, so it's over. But it's not like, you know, I had to take him to therapy like Charles Blow did when his kid got stopped by a Yale cop because this is, but anyway, yeah, that was then. Now it feels to me a lot more like the reaction is connected to commoditizing the status of being a victim of, of, of a racial affront. And that, I know that to some people, that's gonna make me sound like Glenn, uh, Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter. And we're together for about the first 10 feet of a marathon. <laughs> and then we part company and the gap gets wider and wider as we go along. But, but I just wanna make, uh, make that clear. But, but um, I may as well say this now because I was thinking about saying it anyway, and, and I mentioned my son already, uh, and this is pertinent to the D'Angelo stuff. He reminded me, I'd completely forgotten about this, that when he was in either the fourth or fifth grade, he came home with the wisdom that a teacher had given them that day, that racism equals power plus prejudice. And he said he brought that home and laid it out for me proudly to show what he had learned today. And he said, my instant reaction was, oh, well, that's stupid. And of course we had a conversation about it later, but, but that's just to underscore how long this, this stuff has been around. So I guess by that reckoning, uh, I mean, Hitler didn't really become a racist until he was named chancellor. Right. right. <laughs> anyway. That's really, that's racist. interesting. In the early nineties, there was like a, brouhaha centered 
uh, in Georgetown in DC uh, about um, boutique operators who had a, um, a buzz-in system for their small ateliers, right? Uh, who wouldn't buzz in black men because uh, you know, statistically speaking, mm -hmm. young black men were more likely to commit crimes than uh, uh, other people. And um, the thing was outrageous, of course, the argument was outrageous. Uh, but, but I participated in a faculty seminar with a bunch of, you know, kind of mooseheads, some, some on the law school faculty at Yale, uh, who, uh, and it was um, a seminar about race that was connected to main, mainstreaming courses on race and gender into a major. And a line that came from several of my colleagues was that, well, like, he's kind of got a point there. And I said, no, like, the only person who is violating any law here is the shop owners who are violating the 1964 civil rights law. So unless you want to argue that anti-discrimination law is, is less real than real law, right, uh, then there's a problem. Um, but, but, but people could feel comfortable making that argument, right, because uh, partly because of the extent to which something called racism is like disconnected from the substance of actual practices, right. Uh, and Right. And yeah, look, look, I'm prepared to grant that uh, you know, D'Angelo's heart is in the right place, at least on the left side of her chest, but she, and she's probably earnest, but, but you know what, and I, and I, and I apologize for mentioning my dad again, but I remember once uh, we were watching when I was around nine or 10, uh, we're watching the Billy Graham crusade on TV because there was nothing else on TV and we watched for a few minutes and I learned two things. The first thing I learned was that when they announced that one of the guests and performers was going to be the singer and actress Ethel Waters, right? What, what came out of my dad's mouth involuntarily was, God, I didn't know she was broke. So I learned that there's a connection between when popular entertainers find Jesus and when they run out of money. But, <laughs> but the other thing that, that I learned was more telling was, was that he said, listening to Billy's sermon, he said, you know, God has really been so good to Billy since the Hearst um, family picked him up off the street corner uh, after World War II, that, that I'll bet he probably even believes in him now, hmm. right? right? And that's kind of the way that works. And I'm, so I'm convinced that Robin D'Angelo is sincere, but unsurprisingly, as my dad often also said, sincerity is very much an overrated virtue. And then he would point out by saying Hitler was sincere what he wanted to do, right? The problem isn't his sincerity, it's what the fuck he wanted to do. Um, so I don't know. I mean, but, but I'll be willing, or rather, I am willing to grant D'Angelo that, that she thinks she's trying to do the right, right, right thing. I mean, so, and in that sense, I mean, however she might strike us, and I don't really encounter her. I don't encounter her on TV or I don't read the stuff or whatever. How, but however disconcerting or annoying or off-putting she might seem to people as an individual, she's a symptom, right? I mean, she's a symptom of a much bigger problem. Like Trump. Yeah, yeah really. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, uh, could we dig into, uh, Professor, about how, how big that problem is? I mean, clearly, it, they're sincere and there's a little bit of a, there's almost like a church like right. uh, okay. thing around around yeah. this belief system, but right. like they would they would consider you an apostate to, to that to their belief system, right? I mean, the, oh, totally. Flattery the... will get you nowhere, Matt. <laughs> 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 but I mean, it, it, how how do you do? Do you see this whole thing as a you know a fad that that's sort of gripping? Mm -hmm kind of the educated classes right now or is it something that's more worrisome like you know, for me personally when i read the book i i kind of laughed through a lot of it and then there are parts where she talks about how it's necessary to eliminate universalism and um individualism yeah, right. and and that you know it's get back in touch with our collective white identity and things like that wow. and i thought wow this stuff is is kind of dangerous, isn't it? Right. Like, or, or, or am I, or do I for have one that wrong? Side, for one <laughs> side, that she, she says explicitly, I think citing, um, uh, Ken, Kendi, right. She actually says mm -hmm. like whites are, should be viewed. We should generalize about white people, but we should view 
BIPOC people as individuals because they've been so pathologized and denied of agency. It's this weird, like moral reparations thing. I'll, f- I'll find the actual quote, yeah. but I was yeah, kind of stunned by that. She has a whole section yeah. about how stereotyping is okay. There's right. a whole chapter that's named Right, but that. in one direction only. Okay. It's wow. totally infantilizing. Wow. Yeah, well, no, honestly, yeah. But. yeah, totally, totally. And that's interesting. Uh, but I want to say, Matt, first, I mean, you deserve a Purple Heart or at least uh, <laughs> a really nice dinner for having read that. <laughs> well, no, that's interesting. I didn't realize that. I mean, I know that, that in principle, that's the logic of her position. And I will say this, it's not exactly a digression, but it's a kind of a response to the apostate thing. One, one thing I have found over the last decade or so, and I think this is partly because of the emergence of the sort of DSA, Jean Feel, um, race, race first crowd, that my tank is just about full of um, white, familiars, as I call them, because of my affinity for the Blade movies. Um, <laughs> Those are excellent of, movies. Yeah, totally. But uh, yeah, well, but my favorite scene, scene, scene that comes to mind at least well, once a week was where in what one of them, I forget which one, Blade asked the police chief, who is a familiar, just before he kills him, do you, do you really think those bloodsuckers are going to let you live after they win? Which is what I feel like asking all kinds of white, <laughs> white race first. I mean, leftists that I know. But, but um, so my tank is basically full now from white people in particular telling me that I don't understand the depths and intensity of racism and its effect and this, that, and the other. Not because uh, they're violating a normative or an epistemic principle of mine right? But theirs, right? By, by the shit that they argue, they technically don't have the right to say shit to me. So what, <laughs> what, so why is it that I'm the POC that you can tell that, uh, that um, he's got it wrong, right? That's so, interesting. Yeah. And I've taken the calling that out, right? I mean, lately, and the best way to call it out is a, the, just a simple hearty go fuck yourself, right? Um, and I just might get a stamp. <laughs> I haven't just said that on it. I mean, it's a really interesting question. I mean, it's really, and I think it's really important to try to sort of sort through how all this has come to happen, right? Um, and because we're facing such a perilous moment in this society now. And there's one way you can look at this, right? Progression. Okay. 2016. So, all right, the Democrats haven't done shit for working people since before Jimmy Carter. And I sometimes raise eyebrows when I point out that working people as workers, you know, without regard to race, gender, whatever actually got more from Richard Nixon than from any of the four democratic presidencies that followed him, right? I'm mean, not counting uh, on what his name, Biden, yet. So after decades of not doing anything for working people, whatever color, and saying in, instead, sneering, in effect, don't worry, like we'll come back for you, but we got to take care of Wall Street first, right? People react and they react against it, right? And Obama, so like the democratic establishment, the liberals uh, all told us that Obama, and Obama told us this, right? That because of his race, right? And he didn't put it that way personally, but what he did do was say that I embody the progressive vision. Well, what the hell does that mean, right? right? I mean, how does he embody it more than Kucinich, especially if you think hobbits carry the progressive vision? And I would vote for Kucinich tomorrow, so don't get me wrong. We love him. Yeah, yeah, yeah great. Uh, so I don't know we should start a club and like send him some money for the mayoral race, but um, uh, which would be fitting actually, because that's how he got fucked in the first place, right? It was Mayor of Cleveland. So that didn't work, right? And that's when people who were told that trust this this guy, right? Like he's going to be better than Clinton. He's not going to fuck you over the way Clinton did, because you know he's black. Well, that didn't happen. And then Trump comes along and my God, you got Hillary Clinton as, and look, like I'll admit to anybody that a lot of the antipathy, uh, the sort of pornographic and antipathy to Hillary Clinton was sexist and a misogyny. And it sometimes made me think of how people talked about, or a certain kind of person talked about Jane, Jane, Jane Fonda half a century ago. She was also the consummate neoliberal operative who 
couldn't communicate empathy to anybody, right? And so, didn't want to. It didn't seem no, like it. Right, right. She couldn't right. sell it like her husband. No, totally, totally not. No. So you got Bernie challenging this. And then all of a sudden, Bernie Sanders is like uh, a racist white man because the only, because uh, black people don't, don't give a shit about healthcare and education right. and, 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 and jobs and wages. Right. All they care about is, is police brutality and, and uh, the reparations. All right. So that works. It gets people on the MSNBC, right? And so forth and so on. Also does kind of significant work for the corporate wing of the Democratic Party. And then um, Bernie comes back in 2020. And uh, though I'd hoped that this, what would have happened after 2016, uh, it didn't quite for reasons that also are understandable after the fact, at least. But Bernie's 2020 campaign actually leaves residue on the ground in a lot of places around the country for actual movement building and organizing around Medicare for all, right? I mean, we did it in South Carolina, for instance. And then almost on cue, at, uh, you know, when Bernie drops out of the race, uh, you would go into COVID lockdown. And I'm not claiming any connection. I mean, don't get me wrong, but I don't have a line of pillows to sell. But, but I think the difference is that as uh, you know, somebody once said, um, a part of the problem is that our side plays checkers, the other side plays chess. And, and they, yeah. they are prepared and, the, and they have the apparatus to do it. Not that they're smarter than we are, but I mean, they're better situated to take care of opportunities that present themselves and to turn small opportunities into big opportunities. George Floyd was George Floyd's murder. And I'm not trying to diminish that like in any way whatsoever, right? But George Floyd's murder helped them and the POC activists who are, 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 are oriented against the left, basically, right? Um, left the, the real left. The right, yeah. So, I mean, here we are. And I mean, it's, it's not just as crude as you, you do that and the $2 billion in pledged corporate money comes in. But I do recall though, I mean, going back to you know, the beginnings of hashtag BLM, um, I saw a panel with uh, Garza Committee and colors, and was genuinely taken aback at how Garza seemed, and and I remember her because she did most of the talking when I was watching. Seemed literally incapable of considering even to reject that there could be a distinction that that I mean, there could be like a millimeter of daylight between activity that advances a broader movement and activity that embraces or that advances uh, you know the position of the of of the brand holders right the three of them right and they're the same to her and i think that's kind of what this movement is now right uh, and it makes sense it makes sense it makes sense because of how you know the social insurgencies of the 60s have been reduced or um, characterized right as like I mean, for a time, it was like, uh, I mean, I remember saying that, that like, you know, you go to any middle school or grade school or high school in the country on the 15th of January and ask people what they know about Martin Luther King and they'll, and they'd say some version of a long time ago, people didn't have any freedom and then Martin Luther King came and they were free, right? Uh, but so like what, one of the things we've forgotten collectively, right, is, is that movements don't just happen because somebody shows up with a bullhorn and a selfie stick, right? And, and organizing and preparation and a rootedness, right? In actual populations that are made up of people with names and addresses and phone numbers of people who, if they don't have addresses, right? Are, can be found, right? In that sense, I'm not even blaming the activists, but it's like um, a rotten political economic dynamic that's taken shape over the last half half century, and we could go on um, about its its sources and its um, consequences and entailments all day. But what I'm especially concerned about now is 2022 
And, you know, I don't think Biden's a gift to the world. I don't, and I think Biden's going to fuck us ultimately, whether he intends to or not. But if at a minimum, uh, you know, the Democrats can't hold Congress and ideally, like, you know, I'm not that kind of political scientist, so I don't have bets about what, what Senate races they can win, when, where. But um, ideally, get a real uh, a majority in the Senate. And by the way, that would include Biden acting towards cinema and mansion the way that uh, the Lyndon Johnson acted toward uh, the recalcitrant Dems in the Senate, right? So, okay, yeah. right. Oh, you don't vote for this, then you never see another fucking bridge in your state, right? I mean, which is how that's got to go, but none of the Democrats since then have been at all inclined to do any of that. But if that doesn't happen, then, you know, I think that that's going to be the end of American democracy, right, in the next year. And, yeah. and all of these, uh, what's the best way to characterize it? Well, uh, um, all of these um, performative tendencies that occupy the cultural space that a serious left would occupy in the U.S. if there were one, are in effect working for the other side, right? They may not think they are, uh, they may not be getting paid, uh, but they're in effect, um, I, I'm working for the other side. I, I mean, look at the defund stuff, right? That's a problem we never had to have. And yeah, I mean, Republicans would have found something else, but, but the fact that we give it to them just gives them space about, right, to mobilize an opposition against anything. So, I mean, this is the reason actually, Katie knows that uh, the Debs Jones Douglas Institute that, uh, that I'm associated with, it's like a 501c3 that, that was created as the educational arm of the Labor Party in, in uh, on the 98 is um, sort of refocusing our work now because we think that, that being able to do anything else or to win anything or to fight off the worst even uh, is gonna require uh, a lot of aggressive um, I mean, agitation around the idea of government and the public good and uh, to try to rekindle among the working class, basically, um, a way of having expectations of government and public goods as part of the public good. Uh, and there's not a lot of time, obviously, we can't turn that around between now and next November, but we got um, we've we got to start having the conversation. And the only way, um, t t Tony Mazaki, who was like a key person in the origination of the Labor Party, a long time official of the oil, chemical, and atomic workers, used to say, you know, a lot of progressives, you know, like the idea of going to war, but they don't want to build an army, and 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 we, and we we don't have one, right? Uh, and if you start out from the premise that we're you know, in a class war, and it's kind of hard to have missed that since Volcker, right? Then if we're in the class war, then we need to start trying to build an army to fight it, right? And no, I don't mean like in case some right-wing troll uh, um, comes across us. No, uh, you know, I don't mean going to form our own version of a militia movement. I mean, uh, a mobilized uh, and, and class-conscious public, right? Uh, that's prepared, like our key, key premise is what would the country look like if it were governed by and for uh, the interests of the working class? And that's, 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 that's what we think ought to be like, you know, the interpretive cornerstone as, as well as the pragmatic cornerstone of what a serious left in the U.S. would look like. She says openly, like repeatedly in the book on that theme mm -hmm. that for instance, talking about class, not race, yeah. that's like in her list right. of things right. that white people say as a way of deflecting from their inner uh, racism, racism. Okay. right? Or I only, uh, I'm, I, I only see, I don't see color. Right. Uh, I, you know, I just see everybody as individuals. Right. I, I believe in class first. So th these right. are all things that, that, are, that are part of her shtick. Right. You know, par part of me thinks that maybe she actually thinks that, but I, I wonder if the enormous amount of attention that she's gotten and support and the fact that she's blasted all over the cable networks and everything right. is connected to what you're talking about. In other words, that this idea of class, not race is actually ra is a racist right. idea is mm -hmm. a way to, to, to diffuse that politics that, that, that right. you're, you're talking about, right? The sort of right. Sandersian, um, you know, Medicare for all, any of those right. things. If you can explain that stuff away as, 
you know, like have ha as white privilege or whatever right. it is. I mean, that, that seems like it's very effective uh, kind of politics. Yeah. Well, it seems to be, yeah. And I think it is because of the level at which politics or political discourse is acted out or plays plays out in the U.S., right? It's not, it's, it's like MSNBC and crying ass Don, Don Lemon on CNN. <laughs> with backup and, by um, Jake Tapper crying with oh, him. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. No, no. Oh, Lord, Jesus Christ, have mercy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, but see, but I'd go back to like when Katie asked me about um, racism. Um, so if you think of, and my friends and I who are, uh, you know, accustomed to being accused of being class reductionists, have been talking among ourselves about actually taking the label back. Right? Yeah. Uh, because if you think of race as a social category, uh, you know, the way I defined it earlier, right, as, as, a, as a species of a genus of ascriptive ideologies that emerge from a hierarchical society, like in ours, a capitalist one, then the question of class versus race is precluded from the outset, right? Because there's no separation, right? Uh, race as an ideology and as a metric of you know, stratification is part of the dynamics of the reproduction of capitalism as a social, cultural, and political economic order. So there's no such thing as class versus race, right? Mm -hmm. um, and like that, that might not appeal to her. Fundamentally, we should be looking to appeal to her, right? What right to her, or for that matter, to the black people that she hangs hangs out with, or 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 connects with. Uh, there's certainly no reason to listen to Kendi. Um, um, somebody told me that my friend Norman Finkelstein just said on a podcast and not that long ago in response uh, you know, to somebody saying something about Kendi having written a kid's book. He says, well, how can you write a Ken's book? All his books are kid's books. <laughs> and, 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 and Norm is right about that. He is about a lot of other things. Yeah. Right? He compared so, D'Angelo's book to, I think, a Bazooka Joe comic or something. Yeah. Oh my God! Yeah. <laughs> On our show, yeah. Not, so, not even, not even the not whole even the comic. comic it, was, right? it, it, was, it was just like a, it was like a frame uh, from the comic, yeah. Well, so I don't assume that. I mean, either one of you is even old enough to know what a Bazooka I, Joe comic. I mean, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, yeah, but we do for sure. So I mean, here's the thing, right? Uh, like, we aren't gonna win the struggle at that level. Uh, by which I mean, like, we're not going to win the struggle on the pages of the New York Times. We're not going to win, uh, you know, the struggle on the pay on uh, the airwaves of MSNBC. Although I got to say, uh, you know, Chris 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 Cuomo did me a solid on his program on CNN, uh, and he got in touch with uh, Don Lemon because of it. He got you on? Yeah, he did actually. He he, um, he got me on to talk about. Wow one of the New Republic columns about, I can't remember now whether it was um, the police killing thing or which it was, but like he was into it. Like he read it, oh, took wow. it seriously, he engaged and was open to the argument. And, and he was even in, encouraging the argument by some of his questions. So anyway. Adolf, can, can you explain yep. to people, like, I think sometimes people think that, you know, Matt and I, and you obviously, we all have fun making fun, like dunking on Robin D'Angelo. She's so corny. She's such a narcissist, I would say. Um, but oh, that there... a, we, should, we should read them. That there's a scene in there where she, she's, oh my God, she's, yeah. uh, <laughs> she's in London and she's with a cabbie and she mentions that she wrote white fragility and he yeah, says something about like, I'm so tired of being accused of being a racist. And she goes on and on to like denounce him. And at the end, she she says uh also we're also worthy of note was his typical white lack of racial curiosity or humility about the limits of his knowledge uh he had the author of a new york times best-selling book who was in town to do interviews for the bbc in his cab and he did not ask a single question about my thoughts on the matter oh my god oh my god oh my god well see now i thought i had the best cab driver story ever uh, what, what was it uh, well, so one, one, one evening I was taking a cab from my apartment, like Alphabet City up to Penn Station. And I would always talk to cab drivers to get a sense of where they came from, whatever. 
and the and the driver in this instance was a woman, she's an older woman, uh, and she frankly she reminded me a lot of my grandmother, right? Both physically and and by her feistiness. So I asked her where she was from, and she told me she was from Romania. Um, I asked her how long she'd been in the U.S., and she said 10, 10 years, 10, 10, 15 years, whatever. So I said to her, well, I guess you must like it because you're here, right? You're still in New York. Why? This fool that I am. Uh, and she said, there's only one thing I do not like about New York. Oh, no. And <laughs> fool that I am. Oh, no. I said, oh, what's that? And she said, the Jews. <laughs> Well, but my first thought was, well, so you know where you came to, right? Like you could have gone anyplace else in America, I'm assuming, just because the, because the former war criminal networks are still operating, I'm sure. Right. But this is like the worst possible fucking place you could go, right, if that's your concern. But anyway. Yeah, yeah go, 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 go to, you know, northern Maine, if that's who you <laughs> Right. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, I remember when Solzhenitsyn came here in the Carter administration and Carter found out what a backward ass czarist fascist and anti-semite he was <laughs> but they stuck his ass up in northern vermont i think right? yeah yeah uh, a lot of a lot of the the, the russian emigres ended up uh, in, that, <laughs> in that part of the world uh, yeah and a whole community well yeah but anyway that's kind of wild that's really that, funny that, yeah. uh, that, i mean d'angelo thinks that a cab driver a random cab driver like in london should know who the fuck she is I mean, right right God. yeah See, and, to, gonna, and, and to put that in the book too i'm like yeah no i know you think an editor might have caught that. right <laughs> yeah well i mean i was going to say like when i thought the question was going toward uh, her uh i mean narcissism and stuff like i yeah i flirted with going to the seminary for about six or eight months when i was like 12 and i didn't uh, so i don't need to hear her confession i'm not interested in her, her confession right i got no absolution to offer her uh, <laughs> so but i mean i do think that she's like a symptom of this stuff uh, mm -hmm. and, and she's carved out a niche for for herself in it but apparently that's what people do now right you carve out um, occupational niches in the you know movement uh, right justice can you talk about the way people like d'angelo and the kind of thinking that she spreads or the gospel that she spreads actually serves to undermine class programs that are universal but also disproportionately benefit people of color and how then she ultimately winds up contributing to something that perpetuates racism yeah well i mean that's the thing about it man i mean and and like i've got see i mean i know that this is not the way the world works right mm -hmm. but i find myself at least every other week seeing some new instance of the fundamental contradictoriness of race first politics <clears throat> right mm -hmm. it's like some version of you know the racial oh yeah well a recent brouhaha on the internet i don't know if you saw it but tamika mallory the woman who the black woman who had been uh was the center of a contretemps around the organizing of of the women's march after trump trump got elected mm -hmm. uh she just did a cadillac commercial mm -hmm. right and there's so much shit like that, right? Like the Patrice Cullors uh, real estate mini empire. And, oh, I know, yeah. Yeah, but all the rest of that stuff. And I find myself thinking, okay, well, surely this will knock the shackles. This contradiction is so stark that it will knock the shackles off the eyes of some percentage of the population. But it doesn't work that way. Actually, that's, that's, that's really never the way these things work. What we do see is an almost magisterial effort um, being expended from, from the top, basically, to keep us talking about race and gender inequity and nothing else, and not even talking about those two in ways that um, promise any possibility of addressing the inequalities, right? Mm -hmm. so, so like the whole COVID disparity stuff, you know, that, that I've been writing about from the very beginning of it. If you um, start out demanding that we all understand that there's some special disposition that people of color have to getting sick and then dying that has to do with there being people of color, then that distracts you away from what eventually came, came out that, well, it turns out <clears throat> that the racial disparity breaks down to what kind of jobs you work, what the conditions are you work under, what what 
what what kind of conditions you live in, how dependent you are on public transportation, and so forth and so on. So it's back to political economy. But mm -hmm. but the but yeah, but the totality of post World War II racial liberalism has been articulated toward, if not when not openly directed toward, separating race as a discourse of injustice, basically, or, or, or of inequality, not just from something called class, but from political economy and, and shifting it to psychology, ultimately, is what it come, 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 comes down to. Or, or worse, like what the Afro-pessimists have done now is they've taken 19th century race theory and Madison Grant and like repackaged that as progressive Black ideology. It's like crazy. I mean, they're in bed with the worst, worst of nineteenth century races. Right. It's almost like a like a crypto eugenics type of yeah, right thing. Right. You know, and see, yeah. that is a class program. It's a class program. Then, like, I figured something else out too. Um, and uh, and like, this is actually a chapter of a book that I'm working on now. A book that 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 my colleague and friend Kenneth Warren and I are doing. But I, I I've been puzzling with addressing the question of why. So, so much anti-racist discourse now depends on analogy with slavery and Jim Crow, right? Like you can't do it, right? I mean, you can't make the argument uh, without the analogy. And that's ultimately because the political as well as the intellectual concern of the people making these arguments is exactly the same as the political and and intellectual concerns of the um, defeated confederates who um, established and propagated lost lost cause ideology the myth of the solid south and put, put all those confederate monuments up because they were committed to a racialist understanding of the world for the purpose of of, of undermining any possibility of 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 uh, a political economic challenge coming from from the lower classes, basically, <clears throat> that's the same. That's the same reason that that people making uh, you know the arguments or race race reductionist arguments today can't really move without um, drawing links between th this moment and slavery and Jim Crow because they're just as the 19th century. Uh, former Confederates or Southern ruling class was committed to uh, a white supremacist narrative. They are also committed to a white supremacist slash anti-white supremacist narrative for the same reason, right? To keep political economy off off the table and to advance you know, their their particular class program, just as the planter class was what was in the 19th century. So, I mean, the sociologist Rogers Brubaker, whose work on ethnicity mainly centers on Central Europe and is great, but, but uh, you know, Brubaker makes a point that, you know, like we all know, people have a hell of a lot of different identities, right? And people have a lot of different ethnic identities, even, right? In, in most places in the world, and most of us do, right? But they're usually not politicized. I mean, they're contextual, and one identity rises to the fore in social context, depending on who it is that you're talking to, or you know what the context is, right? So, I mean, Brubaker sets himself to ask the question: Well, what are the conditions under which ethnic identities become politicized? And his response is that usually, most of the time, they become politicized when a group of political entrepreneurs, as he, as, as, as he described That's them. That's an interesting term. Mm -hmm. Yep. Are committed to pursuing agendas that require the support of a population that's considerably larger than the number of people who would benefit from realizing the agenda. Look at this outrage. I, what, I, I need to be king, basically. Uh, and we can see that, right? And, we can, and like, um, I, I mean, even now with the race reduction I mean, stuff in the US, right? Like, so um, all of a sudden, it turns out that the victory for George Floyd is some Oscars for some more black people, right? some new black corporate heads, uh, um, C C CEOs, right? Um, and I mean, whatever like that. 
but that's the way that this stuff works. And it's not just here, right? I mean, that's what ethnicity is as a political phenomenon, right? That's what nationalism is and has been from the beginning of nationalism, right? It's, but, but it wasn't, right? right? I mean, most people don't think of it as bourgeois nationalism because it was the bourgeoisie's property. So it would have been redundant to call it that, right? right. And, and, and it still is. So it's a class program. So that's why but right. I mean, that's another reason that uh, New Touré and others and I have been arguing that. Touré is, um, is Professor Reed's son, just so Indeed. people know. <laughs> sorry, yeah. But he's an historian in his own right. But, but, oh, sorry, uh, yes, of course, sorry. Well, yeah. well yeah, yeah, no, no, I didn't mean that as a corrective. But, yeah, but yeah. Um, at this point, he's accomplished enough that I've uh, forgiven him to going to a college that didn't have uh, a competitive baseball program. <laughs> but, but, but every time I see a picture of Barry Bonds and Bobby Bonds, I would think, man, the, that was supposed to be my retirement strategy. No, fucking historian. But anyway, but yeah, but it made the argument, and 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 he probably most most forcefully that that the problem isn't class reductionism. The problem is race reductionism, and that's what the point of race reductionism is: is to make class dynamics not only like in the broader American uh, I mean, society and political economy, but among black people, right? I mean, disappear, right? I mean, so this is anecdotal, I know, but I really don't believe that I'm falsifying memory here, but you know, I worked in the Sanders campaign both, both times and more in 2016 than in 2020, I would have these um, interactions with smaller or, or larger groups of black people in which somebody would ask why Bernie's not doing anything to appeal to black people. And my response was in, invariant. I, I would just go down the platform item by item, read it and say, okay, or recite it and say, so isn't this something that blacks and Latinos would disproportionately benefit from? And people would agree. And the part that I don't think that I'm falsifying in, in, in my memory is that I don't recall one encounter with working class black people. And all right, so, so these are mainly people in unions, but not exclusively, where at the end of my recitation, the response wasn't, yeah, okay, I see your point, right? I get it now, that's right. I, I can barely recall a single um, on interaction with people, with black people from our class, right, uh, that produced the same or provoked the same kind of response. Because for them, what, what they understand to be the black agenda, right, is this class skewed abstract set of uh, positions or, pro, or, or, I mean, not even policies, stances, right, that are connected with uh, recognition of the standing of the racial voices or, or themselves as re representatives of, of the collective racial mind or, or will. So for them, I mean, I remember now, like, I, uh, and, and in retrospect, it makes me feel kind of stupid. I remember like having a couple of conversations with my colleagues in the Yale Afro-American Studies program, like in the late eighties and the beginning of the nineties with, where I'd say something about my um, political economic issues, a lot of it had to do with the underclass ideology, which was also a class ideology uh, about beating up on poor people. Uh, but I get responses, kind of uh, you know, dismissive responses from my colleagues about stuff like uh, national healthcare and shit, who would say things like, well, Adolf, you know, people aren't just concerned you know, with economic stuff. And what, what I would think at the time, but it was too genteel to say was, yeah, you don't motherfucker, because you got a you know, job for life and good benefits, right? But, but a lot more black people are not in your position than, than are. You know, I didn't say it at the time, but now I think, shit, I should have, because that's what the reality is, right? Because what, because what we've been living through over the last half, half century, and this is the beauty of the work that racism as a polysemous ab abstraction does of crafting what is um, a sort of a racial, you know, a black racial concern with public policy as an exclusively uh, black in investor and a managerial class um, perspective. Is, isn't this sort of just an extension of like, I mean, it reminds me of the response to Martin Luther King after the Riverside Church yeah. speech, mm -hmm. right? right? Where it's like, 
suddenly Family. all these white intellectuals were right. basically saying, yeah, we were we were all for it as long as you were right. talking about your issues. But then right. when we get to war or, you know, right. sort of union issues or whatever it is like, that's that's not for you. Right. Stay away. No, and, no, that's and, right. right. And and it's almost like they've institutionalized that concept now. And and it's funny, even in, in D'Angelo's book, she's just relentlessly negative about King for a, for a bunch of reasons. I think oh, it's for okay. that, but also this, she's very in, in, against this idea of the colorblind society. Like, right. you know, she, she confuses the idea of people copping out by saying, I don't see color with the aspiration right. to colorblindness. Right. right. But, but I think it's goes deeper than that. Right. I think it's a lot of, it has something to do with what you're talking about. It's this, we understand, she wants everybody to understand this issue to be solely and especially concerned with something that is clearly identified as a, as a racial right. problem. Uh, yeah, I think there's a parallel there and there's an irony too, right? Because, because substantively, yeah, I mean, well, but the reaction that King got was that, no, 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 there's a civil rights thing over here and right. that's just about that stuff. But shit like war and the economy and poverty, nah, uh-uh, that's, uh, uh, I, I mean, that's not a civil rights issue. And what we're hearing now, but now it's coming like in in black, right? And from people who are who like understand themselves to be, you know, followers of Malcolm X or you know the Black Panthers or whatever the fuck, or or operating in that same tradition, right? Who are now doing the silencing, right? So and look, guys, it's so insidious, right? It's the kind of thing that makes me like at least once a week want to put on. Uh, I mean, Mahalia Jackson singing, soon I will be done with the troubles of the world. <laughs> that, this is some solace because it's so in, insidious, but it's coming out of the labor movement now, right? I mean, people, right? So black workers can't just be workers, right? They, well, but they got to have some special black thing about them, right? That, well, I'm not denying that black workers are black as, 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 as much as workers, but uh, to keep with, with uh, my prior illustration, black is the adjective, worker is the noun, right? Mm. Um, but the thing is always, um, I mean, how do we try to build the solidarities that we need to have to change the society in the way to make it better for everybody who lives in it, except, you know, Bezos and those people. But the practice, right, of this performative race first politics is completely disconnected from any sort of pragmatic questions like that. And it's not only disconnected from, from such questions, it's, it tends to be so essentially an antagonistic to pursuit of such, such questions. Uh, like it makes me want, look, I mean, I remember COINTELPRO, right? I was like a victim of it myself far, far enough ago in the past. So I wonder, God, are these people getting paid? And then I think, well, no, they aren't getting paid. Like they don't, yeah, they mainly aren't, I guess. I mean, they don't have to, right? Because this is like the other side has won on the conceptual and the ideological front so conclusively that, that our side is incapable of thinking about how to challenge them, right? So, so all of the modalities of left activism or most of the modalities of I mean, left activism, especially the shit you see on TV, um, presume the eternal dominance of ne neoliberal capitalism. And uh, all we're doing is like jockeying around, right? I mean, like within that framework, I mean, even as, as Walter Ben Michaels and Ken and others have pointed out, re uh, I mean, reparations is a tort action, right? It's all about a property relation, right? Well, but the idea of restoring Black people to what they might have had if if some racist act or practice hadn't uh, intervened, right? I mean, that's a class politics, right? Uh, but I mean, despite the fact that there are a lot of people going around making a living now claiming that nobody knew about the Tulsa massacre or about Juneteenth. I found out about Juneteenth at some point in the seventies. It seemed kind of silly to me and I don't understand why, I can see why it's a holiday in Galveston. I, I don't see why anybody else should give a shit about the Juneteenth, but, but, but that's neither here nor there. Right, and they're cookout opportunities, uh, and so you never have enough of those. So. No, no. So, and I mean, Lowe's is probably behind it. Actually, <laughs> I don't know how it is. Uh, sell those grills, but but uh, 
But like Tulsa, like I've known about the Tulsa pogrom, because that's what it was, for a long time. It's only in the past few months and, and the run-up to the celebration or I mean commemoration like of Tulsa this year that that even I knew anything about the black black Wall Street stuff. So then all of a sudden, like the horror of the pogrom isn't the pogrom. It, it's that this black business class got destroyed, right? Well, who gives a fuck about the black business class except the black business class, right? And I mean, that's not even to get to stuff like, like this was 1921, 1929 was only eight, eight years later. So some shit was likely to happen then anyway, but you know, but that's kind of where we are. And, uh, and, and yeah, I mean, it, it's frankly, for me, it's becoming more of an effort to dispel or to fight off despair because I don't think we've got a lot of time and I'm really afraid about what's going to happen if not in 2022, uh, at least by 2024. And um, yeah, I don't know that our, that, that, um, I mean, our side is up to the challenge. We didn't even get into how these anti-racist trainings don't actually work. They don't reduce bias. Right. There's really, you know, they right. may actually make these things worse. Um, yeah. Well, it seems to me they would. I, what, I mean, like I saw, um, I saw a couple of reports to that effect. And I didn't think there was anything at all surprising about that, right? That, that because any process that begins from 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 establishing how how we differ, instead of um, finding points of commonality, is going to wind up like that. It just feels to me like one of those moments where you really don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind's blowing, right? But if you start out going in that direction, guess what? You're going to wind up in that direction. Right. I guess the, the, the last question for me is having talked to people about this and had arguments about this, the one, the one thing that people say is, well, you know, sort of the rise of kind of Trumpian nationalism or whatever, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. um, necessitates like a, a rethink among like a heightened level of awareness about racial politics um, because there's this real threat that's rising therefore this kind this kind of thing is is necessary and important and maybe you know even if you don't love reading it like it, it actually has a positive impact i you know i i wonder what you think about that like part of me i i, I kind of understand that argument but the other part thinks it's like, almost like you were saying about COINTELPRO, pro like this is such an off-putting antagonistic uh ideology that i i, I imagine that Overall, it probably has a negative impact politically, and I don't know. I just wondered yeah. how, how, how to think about that question. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. I wonder about that too. I mean, you know, like when when the reparations issue, like at the beginning of this century, just somehow wound up back on the table, right? Like it's kind of funny. I was out of the country for a month in that summer and wasn't paying attention to news here, and got back to find that. Um, Johnny Taylor was dead, which really disappointed me, but also that the reparations thing was going around. There were panels and panel discussions and special issues of journals, and I couldn't figure it out. And um, I was talking to Ray about it. He was in grad school at the time, uh, finishing up. And, uh, and we watched a panel together on PBS, I think, with Kimberly Crenshaw and Ron Karinga and um, I think uh, the Harvard lawyer, um, Ogletree. And like, this is the kind of thing that lawyers would love, right? Cause you get into it and, and, and we can litigate it, right? Uh, until the cows come home. But Karinga said something about free college tuition for black people. And this was also around the time that the labor party actually uh, had started a campaign or was, was getting ready to start a campaign for free public uh, college you know, for everybody. And that like, so much of our program actually wound up in the Sanders platform, which is cool, I think. But, but anyway, like when Karinga, I think it was, said, said that, like, I mean, Teray turned to me and said, so are they recruiting for the Klan, right? I mean, you can imagine going to Michigan and like telling busted laid off auto workers that, I mean, they've like, they're suffering from a disease called racism and that they need to atone by paying tax money so black kids can go to college when their own kids can't, can't go to college. So no, right, I don't 
think it's useful. I mean, I think what I mean, there are ways to talk about it, right? I mean, there are ways to talk about race, uh, and mainly the ways to talk about race. Uh, I mean, have to do with helping people understand th that race is what it has always been, right? The distraction uh, that that the people who want to fuck you over uh, won't want to use to divert your attention uh, to the fact that they're in the process of fucking you over. And that that seems to me that it's never been clearer, right? It seems to me that that's clearer now than it was at the end of the 19th century. Because at least at the end of the 19th century, like they had to go out and beat, beat down populists, right? Uh, capital P populists, the real ones. And, mm -hmm. and by the way, I want to say for the record, there's no such thing as right-wing populism. Yeah, so, you and uh, Thomas Frank should do yep. a duet. Yeah, no, show, no, yeah. definitely. Def well, and, 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 and I mean, Walter and I were actually talking about doing an article on that, but I don't know when we get around to it. But yeah, no, I would love to do that with Thomas. But yeah, like at least then it took, you know, force and violence. Now it's like open uh, and every day, like the my pillow guy, for God's sake, right? This former dope fiend and convicted felon is getting up on this stuff and 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 and, and it's hustling people on it. And, and that just says to me more and more, what we need is having frank conversations with actual people in in the society, not mediated through through mass media. But, but about what the problems are in, in their lives. They're anxious about what policy responses would confront them, who's, who's not offering what, and then encouraging that discussion about, you know, for people actually to start thinking about what the society would look like if, if, if it were governed by, by and for the concerns of the working class. And that's got nothing at all to do with Robin, uh, I mean, D'Angelo. I mean, people like to read stuff like that. I don't know. I mean, and I mean, I'll be honest about this too. I mean, to me, there's something that's like, and yeah, I don't think that she is, but there's something that's kind of distaste, distastefully Protestant about this to me. It's like um, atoning in public, marinating one's, oneself in one's own guilt as, as, as public performance. And it's just tawdry. Worth it financially though. I mean, I Oh yeah, well, it works out. Yeah, yeah, yeah it works yeah, out. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, she she also has worked for the Department of she's trained the Department of Homeland Security now and uh, Department of yeah Defense. Oh my yeah. God, has she really? Yeah. Oh yeah, she makes like six grand an hour doing these trainings. It's amazing. And, and wow. why do I why do I think that she doesn't talk about imperialism when she's uh, talking <laughs> well, to Department oh, of Homeland? Uh, oh, she said that though, right? I mean, she's. Uh, I mean, I saw her quoted someplace about a year ago saying that. Saying, well, of course, capitalism is back of all of this. Oh yeah, she yeah. does. She knows. I mean, it's become enough right. of the thing that she can't pretend it's not there. So she right. actually says, "I have the quote." Um, she goes, "More and more wealth is being concentrated into fewer and fewer hands. Where right. do our leaders direct our attention to the racial other?" To this end, Trump's insistence on calling COVID nineteen the China virus was strategic class warfare uses racism to oh. divert our attention away from the top and toward the bottom dog whistle racism the use of coded or suggestive language to signal a racist message while still offering plausible deniability is a tool of class warfare but sh she has no nothing to suggest about and how we deal like with this was, at all yeah no it sounds like it's new that she added it because because but i it, saw like a year or two ago she said yeah, yeah well capitals in back of it but i can't talk about that because i wouldn't get invited. right i mean that how long is the, this book matt how many pages is uh nice racism it's 224 so it's a short book yeah so okay. that's the only time i think that she well to be fair it's a short book because it's just what it's like a condensed version of her book. new i mean yeah, it's the yeah. same book but well, um you know, uh, yeah maybe matt like you're just gonna deli meal for that one because <laughs> yeah it's uh i read the fucking bell curve yeah oh, you paid your dues yeah. Mm, yeah but but she i mean it is so narcissistic and yeah. i think sometimes the left my fellow lefties we can over vilify libs but mm -hmm. she really is like, I mean, she, there's a part in the in the book where she she talks about how um, she feels bad that she didn't interrupt when her friend was like giving a lecture and people were thanking the organization for providing them with anti-racist training. And she realized it was col colonizing her friend. They were treating her like like imperialist or something like that yeah. and what? she she real she wanted to she regretted not having interrupted it um i was like what kind of person 
Like right. it, it's all about herself. It's right. all about, yeah. there's so much, all the stuff she claims right. to, to, to criticize the white saviorism. Right. Like she also seems to have made a lot of mistakes since writing white fragility. Like I think some of these things are in the time between then and now, how do you not know how to fix this? I guess, cause you have to constantly be doing a refresher course with Robin D'Angelo uh, to stop yeah. your racism from rearing its head. Bingo. That's it. It's ama it's amazing how quickly this has become, you know, uh, like a, a dominant kind of theology, and it's yeah. been it's been amazing to watch. But uh, in any case, uh, Professor, thanks so much for coming on and talk talking to us yeah, about thank this. Thank you so much. And you got you got to come oh, back, back when then. when your when your when your book's yeah, uh, ready to come out. Well, okay. we, we got we got to yeah. blow it out for you. So All yeah, right, definitely, uh, I appreciate definitely, that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, thanks, thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, thanks so, so much. much. All right, All take bye, care professor. now. Bye. Take care. I remember your blazing hatred for all things Duke. Are you watching? Uh, are there any Dukies in the finals right now? No. You got a Wake Forest guy. Yeah, well, right. yeah, well, actually, there's a Tar Heel on each team. Oh, right, Cam Johnson and right. uh, and and uh, you know, Justin Jackson, who hasn't played. Right, yeah, yeah, hasn't played. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do think that um, uh, you know I understand why Roy uh, resigned, and mm -hmm. I, and I think that Hubert Davis was the proper choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, no, he's he's a smart guy. I yeah, yeah, yeah. And Did, I think he's going to help with uh, the recruiting, and he's like deeply committed to the program and and to the university. So, the kids who want to go to college for at least a couple of years, and their families are likely to be moved by that. Where the rat over there in Durham kind of kind of get all the. So this isn't a joke. You like you have like a you, like. Duke, like you, for oh, real, yeah. you can't send it. No, yeah, no, 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 no. Uh, uh, no, in fact, I gave a talk uh, at Carolina a number of years ago at the library, and and I pointed out that uh, one of the things I learned in Chapel Hill was the real meaning of primordial hatred. <laughs> Tootsies to me, right? Uh, I mean, I can't stand that shade of blue. I can't like, like the lettering on the the Gothic lettering mm. turned my stomach. I mean, no, it's like total revulsion. <laughs> that's really funny <laughs> yeah yeah they, and they they also the the kind of like duke diaspora the way they pal around with each other and like right after they after they get to the league that's that's a little tough to take i'm a celtics oh, fan okay. so i have to live with it because of jason tatum but um, yeah oh but, oh yeah well and look like uh, i mean for a while i mean look like here the fucking pelicans are going to do an all duke roster right Right, but yeah. Zion, who really wasn't there for long enough to count, right? Uh, right. But they right. got Reddick from the Phillies or from the 76ers. Yeah, but he's gone now. Uh, right. Brandon right. Graham or mm -hmm. Ingram, rather. Ingram, yep. That's uh, right. But I just look the other way. <laughs> in one minute, we're going to just weigh in on this major media before. Oh, okay, go ahead. So here's what I'm saying. We got Aaron Mate, friend of show Aaron Mate, right? Former guest, uh, Jimmy Dore. Uh, one time guest, Jank Uger. Never guessed, never in the past. I'm going to guess never in the future. <laughs> Annika Sperium, who else am I leaving out? They are beefing. And then now Kyle is, has been pulled into the fold. Ryan Grimm was already there. Um, we should get him on the show. And people are demanding that people comment on this, mm -hmm. right? So Kyle, you know, Jimmy was wanted Kyle to comment, and then Kyle commented, and now Jimmy went out uh, debriefed, let's say, Kyle's commentary. But I'm saying, Kyle, look, there's a whole world out there that's been silent, and your silence is complicity. Okay, so mm -hmm. Kyle, Kyle Kalinsky, he co-hosts a show. Who does he co-host that show with? Crystal Ball. Crystal, Crystal. Her, her silence Your is deafening. Your silence is deafening. Okay, Crystal Ball, you host a show with Sagar and Jetty. Sagar, what say ye? Right. What right. say ye? Sagar, you co-host a show. Uh, put up or shut up. Put up or shut up. No, no, or, actually, just put up. Yes, speak out or get out. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you host a podcast, and that podcast is co-hosted with someone else um named marshall kosloff and i want to know where marshall comes down on this mm -hmm. marshall where marshall you are you coward comment you coward right 
Right. All these people on the sidelines, they have no backbone. They are like, what's his name? They are like um, J.D. Vance. Just blowing in the wind. Yeah. You know, so has, has Nathan Robinson weighed in on this yet? I uh, don't know if he has, um, but if he hasn't. We need 26,000 words from Nathan on this. Yeah, that's uh, true. I'll, I'll be I'll be disappointed if it's anything less than 20. Let's put it that way. Marshall is at the Hudson Institute. Speaking of which, I want everyone. I want all the Hudson Institute experts. I'm talking David Asher. I'm talking both Marshalls. Marshall as in Sagarangetti's, but also Marshall Billingsley, who's a fellow there. Do you know Billingsley? that they got? Yeah, is that how you say it? Probably. Marshall Billingsley. Yeah, Marshall Billingsley. Casey Mitchell, Michelle, who hates us, who hates me. Where do you how about, stand? How about oh, Penny Marshall? I want Penny Marshall. Is she still alive? Well, death is not an excuse in this situation. You know what? She's yeah, dead. Yeah, she's dead. That's convenient. Yeah. That's convenient. You think that's going to stop us from asking for a comment? Right. Especially if she's not be hi hiding behind the coffin, as they yeah. say. Is that a thing? No. Oh, <laughs> I'm hiding behind the old, ye old hiding behind the tombstone. Right, tombstone exactly. face. Tombstone face. Tombstone head. Tombstone. Uh, oh, all right, so, hiding so, in the coffin like the so, mayor in Peru. Remember? Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So so our goal this week is is to get Crystal and Sagar to weigh in. Marshall. Marshall. And at least two Marshalls at the Hudson. At, Hudson at, le at least two of the Marshalls and at least 20,000 Nathan Robinson words. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how many Crystal, Sagar, Marshall one, Marshall two, Nathan. So our what we're five. We got five going five. once, going twice. We got a week to get these five individuals. But what if we don't get them to do it? What's that going to mean? Well, can we provoke somebody to do like? Why don't I, we? Yeah. You know what we should do? We should um we should tell one of the principles, one of the more excitable principles, that these people are talking shit about them. Right. It's behind their back. Okay. I'll right. Do it, yeah. Let's send emails. Did you hear what Nathan said about you? We'll just yeah, we'll just do a we'll do a screen grab. I'll write <laughs> right. it right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be like exactly. Yeah. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.